Hey everyone, this is Johnny Mack and welcome to the Extend the Chill podcast. Uh, excited to have Dave Starman, the quintessential uh, hockey analyst on both TV and radio. Dave, I didn't know I'd hit you with a four-syllable word uh, right <laughs> off the bat, but uh, that's a college education coming at you right there. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate being on and I, I, I love what you're doing with Extend the Chill. I love the message that you're getting out there. I I love the sweatshirt you gave me. Like I, I sleep in the thing. It's the most comfortable thing I've ever worn. And it's generated a lot of good conversation when I've worn it around. So keep up the good work. Look at that. Look at that. You can get those sweatshirts at extendthechill.com. Very nice, Dave. I like that. I, I guess I'll be seeing a big old T in the screen, too, like uh, all your uh, sponsorships going on. Which, <laughs> by the way, always was a T guy, right? Irish Catholic. And then... Uh, Somebody about 10 years ago gave me an espresso martini, and uh, that was it. Now I'm a coffee guy. But every once in a while, <laughs> I, to honor my mom, I, I definitely go Bigelow too. I'll tell you what. It, it gets you through a hockey season, and I'll always support a family business. That's what I love about them. So it's a great product, and I, I love the fact that the, the, the lady who owns it now is a third-generation owner. That's just it's, that's awesome to see. That's what it's all about. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, it's all about family and, and, you know, extended chill. My daughter and I started, uh, started a lifestyle brand and turned into this podcast. And we really just want to get the messaging out in terms of, uh, both adults and kids, um, making sure that they make time for themselves and, you know, relieve stress and relieve anxiety. I think with the on onslaught of technology now, uh, particularly kids, um, but all of us are, uh, are hit with all sorts of uh, um, what we deem to think perfection out there. And there's a lot of anxiety and stress that uh, comes from that. Um, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about a bunch of stuff, but uh, particularly in the last 10, 15 years, how um, youth sports, I mean, listen, you've been in hockey now over 35 years uh, or just about 35 years. You've done everything. You've, you've coached, uh, youngest coach in the Central Hockey League at 31 years old. Um, you're, you've been a scout. Uh, you were a player. Uh, you're a hockey dad, obviously, with Ryan uh, playing currently. Um, but, you know, what have you seen the changes, um, both in uh, the kids and the parents and the anxiety and stress? Is certainly hockey's got uh, the added uh, financial um, stress because it's so expensive to play. But, but, but in general, in youth sports, what have you, what have you seen across the board? It's, it's really interesting because I, I think that over the last, let's say, 10, 15 years, the dynamic has really shifted. And I think that there are a lot of people who make some decisions without having all the information available. And they go by what they hear at the rink or they go by supposedly uh, from the people who know everything. And, and that's where it breaks down. I, I think, first of all, I think you've got this tremendous FOMO effect, you know, the fear of missing out. But the other part of it is there are so many young sports parents that just don't know what they don't know. And because of that, wind up making some decisions that all of a sudden uh, they start to regret or they start to think might have been the wrong one. And it adds some stress and anxiety to their lives that they probably don't need. Whereas most of the kids just want to play. And that to me is the, the interesting shift here. I, I think there are so many parents and you and I have experienced a lot of it, you know, being in, in Long Beach with, with some of the parents and 
where to play. And, and I, you've heard people in the stand say, well, I've invested so much in this. I, I want to get a return out of it. And that's not what it's about. What it's about is the experience of the player. You know, I, I spent so much time in, in college hockey and we talk about the student athlete experience, but that has to extend to youth hockey too. And I, I think one of the things that USA hockey did really well with the launch of the American development model was they created a game that's a lot more fun to play. So I think on the on the kids' side, we've we've gone a long way in making the game better. We teach it better, we structure it better, we administrate it better in a lot of ways. And I think for the most part, the kids are getting a better experience because of the fact that the coaching's improved, the playing's improved, the game is improved. Where where I think it gets off the rails a little bit is on the parent side and Again, whether it's the tier one ego or not knowing where to put a player or the stress of tryouts in, in March and April, whereas we used to have tryouts back, you know, back when you and I were playing as younger kids. I mean, we did tryouts in September and then you played on your team. And I, I think we can make a huge case that if tryouts were later in the summer, let's say you started tryouts in early August, as opposed to having them in March or April when your season has just ended, you might wind up with some teams that look a whole lot different because once these kids get out of their season, and they start playing some other sports, and they get some rest, and and they grow a little bit. They become different players, and I I think that we sometimes take away from the from the kids' ability to make better teams by trying them out a little bit too early. And we're never going to win that battle, but just it's, a, it's an observation I've had. But I think that parents really need to dive in to the big picture landscape of what's going on and do their research and talk to credible people. Talking to coaches is one thing, but every coach is going to tell you that their program is the greatest thing that's ever happened and you should be playing in that program. I, I think that it's up to the parents that have gone through this process, if we could, to sometimes journal or a blog or provide some kind of videotaped oratory of what we've gone through and what some of the things that we would suggest or recommend, because I think that that would really help the parents moving along to understand what we have gone through, what we did, what we did wrong, what we did right, and help them make some better decisions because that I think eliminates a tremendous amount of the anxiety that starts right around January 15th when everybody starts thinking to themselves, okay, so this season ends in March, but basically it's over and we got to start thinking about next year. Videotape oratory, as I just had the lights go out in, uh, in the studio here. Videotape oratory. That, consider this the videotaped oratory. Well, listen, honestly, um, I've experienced it, right? So, and, I, and I've even reached out to you um, over the course of, you know, my son Johnny playing hockey uh, down in Long Beach, uh, you know, and it's crazy. Like, I remember reaching out to you when, as a 14-year-old, um, kids were on Instagram posting their commitments to these D1 colleges. And I remember reaching out to you and saying, Dave, what the hell is going on here? Like, what, what is this? And, uh, you know, and you talked me back down and you said, Hey, I know you see it all over. Just relax. If he still loves hockey at 16 and 17, then you can start making decisions. And it was the greatest advice that I ever got because, you know, the FOMO stuff, it's true. As a parent, I was like, am I doing something wrong? Uh, and it was stressful. And it, it I was like, maybe I should be doing this. Maybe I should be getting him private lessons. Like everything that the parents go through now. And he was 14 then, but now I see it at five, six, and seven. I've grabbed parents, younger parents. And I've said, hey, your kid doesn't have to play AAA hockey ever. Like 
don't get caught up in that at six, seven, eight years old. Like, just let them play, to your point, you know? There's no question. And you and I have had some great conversations on this. And, and I'll tell you this. Like, I would consider myself, and this is, I'm not pumping my tires here, but I would say I'm in the 5%, the top 5% of parents who understand the big picture of what's going on because I've lived it. Like, I've coached and I, I've helped thousands of kids try to get to the next level of where they wanted to play. We've had a lot of success stories. We've we've had some failures too, but you know, I've learned along the way as a coach and an administrator uh, how to guide players to the next level and how to guide parents to help their players get to the next level and some of the little things you need to do. But here's the thing. I'm going through it with my 05 birth year kid, and and my kid is not in the top 10% of the 05 birth year by any means. He's a good player, but he's not, you know, he's not an elite player. So I've reached out to a lot of people that I trust in the business and I've said, okay, like I got to put my hockey dad hat on and take my administrator and scout and coach background out of this. I've got to reach out to you now because now it's my child. So there's a little bit more of an emotional investment here as to trying to do this the right way. So what would you suggest based on what you see of them and what you know of them and what the landscape that you're encountering at the junior level, the college level? So I really think you need to build a network of people you trust and a network of people who've been through it. And that to me is the easiest way to be able to provide the right advice. And you made a great point. Like, I think that there, there are some five, six, and se- or I should say six, seven, eight-year-olds where I've seen parents put stuff on Facebook pages about where to get private lessons for their seven-year-old goalie or their eight-year-old skater. And I'm like, private lessons i said take the kid public skating <laughs> you know like, like you, you want the greatest thing for your kid take them to the rink spend the five bucks and let them go public skating for two hours so now they're on their edges on bad ice with no stick to lean on so now they're working on balance and edges and a little core strength and they're letting their body figure some things out and they're out there with their friends so they're not thinking about the process they're just going out there and doing it and sometimes to me getting kids to play multiple sports and getting kids to do the things at the most simplistic level are some of those things that make them better players as they go along, as opposed to taking them out of six hours of school and then putting them on the ice for an hour in a private lesson in a somewhat intimidating scenario where they're basically struggling to hold on versus anything else. I, I, I think at times we have tried to specialize these kids too young, and that has added a lot, I think, to the parent's stress level. Because, listen, no eight-year-old is going to look like Wayne Gretzky, let's be honest about it, but everybody thinks in three weeks they should. I think you mentioned a couple of things, uh, friends and fun. You know what I mean? Friends and fun. It's as simple as that. Um, interesting story. So Johnny started skating early. My son, big kid, um, took to the skating real quick because he has his cousins out in Wisconsin. They had the ice rink in the backyard. It, it was the most incredible uh, scene you ever want to see. You know, outside at, at literally midnight, um, as, as a five-year-old kid uh, on the rink with his cousins, you know, just messing around with the lights. It was, it was great. But um, so when he became, when he was four or five, somebody threw him out there with the mites, right? Because he was a big kid. So he played mite for more than you should normally play, right? But in the middle of it, he went up to, uh, what's above mites? God. Squirts. He went up to squirts, right? But they had changed the rule. Like, you guys did such a great job uh, at USA Developmental Hockey. And, and I say you guys because you were uh, – I remember you in the rink being the advocate um, for these kids playing cross ice. And they actually implemented it. I don't know if it's 10, 12 years ago now, uh, maybe maybe 15, maybe, probably 10 or 12, where 
the kids at the might age, because they were playing full length ice. Like how crazy is that, that you have these young kids playing what the professionals play? Like just nobody picked up on that. But anyway, you guys did a great job switching it over, getting those kids to play um, cross ice hockey, half ice hockey. Uh, and Johnny had already played squirt a year, but they put him back to might, ho might hockey. So in other words, he had to go from playing full ice squirt as a younger kid back to might hockey. So the only thing he was upset about was the fact that he had this friend group that for a couple of years that he increased with, but now he had to go playing back and playing cross ice. And I sat down and he was a pretty mature kid. And I said, buddy, your job now is to make other kids better, to show other kids, to pass the puck. You don't need to score 40 goals. Bottom line is he really took it on. And I, and I believe from that experience made him the player he is today in terms of his outlook and, and unselfishness or whatever. But I tell the story only because I can't tell you how many parents came to me that were more upset than I, they were livid. They were like, how could you, that's crazy. He shouldn't be playing cross ice. And I'm like, after a season of cross ice, watching him play, it just solidified what you guys were talking about at USA Hockey. My son happened to be a kid that could go up and down the full ice and touch the puck, but he would be the only one that touched the puck in full ice, Dave. None of the other kids would touch the puck, but in cross ice, every kid touches the puck. Um, and it just amazes me that parents wanted to fight against something so basic uh, and they have so much more fun and every kid gets involved. Here's the beauty. The, the numbers don't lie. And I know that we can twist statistics to prove whatever we want, but USA hockey in, in using the little seizures program in Detroit did a great piece and it's online. You can find it about the metrics of AU hockey. And they, they did a, an experiment and they, they put the electronic sensors on a bunch of players, eight U players in terms of puck touches and activity and ice time and that kind of thing. And they did it cross ice, half ice, and full ice. And you saw the number of puck touches and the, and the time involved in and around the play go so down when they got to the full ice component for these eight U players. And the numbers were two to four times higher in the cross ice model. And what, what do we want to do? We want to make players better, right? We want to make them enjoy the game. And it's funny because your son would have been the kind of player, and I remember when he played mites for us. I mean, I, he was the kind of player that was more dynamic than a lot of the others. He was an early matriculator for sure. But he was the player we would talk about in these meetings when we said we got to get rid of full ice because three kids touch the puck and everybody else watches. And it's not, it's not helping the players who are watching, and it's really not challenging the players who have the puck all game because if they have the puck all game and nobody can get away from them, what, what are they getting out of it? So we figured to make it better for everybody and to set these kids up for – for success at the next level, it was time to shrink the rink. And that's what we needed to do. And we saw a much better game with these kids playing cross ice, because then once they started to move up to full ice, they understood the concept of a little bit of puck support, of moving the puck, of getting involved, of being close to it. And hey, listen, the human brain isn't fully developed until you're 25 anyway. But all of a sudden we start to see... Or, some or, or, or 55, but... Yeah, so. well, in our case, right. So... <laughs> But but you start you start to see some early processing. You're starting to see some kids figure some things out. And you know, it's funny. I was talking to Mike Haviland yesterday. Mike coached in the NHL, was an assistant for a long time, was the assistant in Chicago when they won the cup. He's he's won championships in the American League and the East Coast League as a head coach and and was the head coach at Colorado College for seven years. And he and I were were talking yesterday. We were talking about the importance of unstructured pond hockey 
type of thing. And, you know, his brother owns the New Jersey Titans uh, program, youth and the North American League team. And, you know, they spend a lot of time getting their kids on the ice and a lot of unstructured scenarios where the kids can just grab 12 guys and go play three on three cross ice. You know, as 15 year olds, 16 year olds, 18 year olds, 20 year olds, they love it. Why? Because they're touching the puck all the time. And uh, Kenny Roush, who's a friend of mine who was at USA Hockey Forever, and is one of the pioneers of the ADM. Kenny's like, I'm a marathon runner. So it's not me being lazy, but I'd rather play cross ice than full ice when I play men's league because I'm around the puck all game. And this is a guy that's won a national championship as a collegiate player at BU. So it is amazing how many players from the Olympic level, the NHL level, the college level have all raved about three-on-three cross-ice hockey. If they're raving about it and they're getting something out of it and they're improving by it, then how the hell can a might parent say, we need to play full ice? It is mind-boggling that they don't get it. Yeah, I mean, uh, like like you said uh, before, we've lived it. Um, so... I don't hesitate to take parents aside at the rink, especially um, when I go and, and I see a younger game or, or even parents that I know, or maybe I know if they're, you know, from somebody else, you know, I'll say, you know, tell them to give me my number. And, you know, listen, not that I, I don't know all the answers. I just want to give my experience and let parents make their own decisions, other parents make their own decisions. Uh, but the one thing I do tell them is that, um, you know, this whole thing about AAA hockey and, you know how serious it gets and uh at a younger age now it, it's it's crazy and and you know the cost factor is definitely an issue and that's an issue of you know the stress and the anxiety for these parents and you see these outbursts at the rink and uh you know i think i think 95 percent of the parents are good people you have that five percent that you know are, are idiots no matter what but I think a lot of parents, a lot of the outbursts you see at the rink are coming from people that are that are really good people outside the rink. But the stress and the anxiety of, you know, where their son is and, you know, he wants to play in college. And, oh, my God, I just played paid eighty five hundred dollars for this season for triple A hockey. And I really can't. I had a I had a I had a guy confide in me. Uh, he was uh, uh, an advisor, I guess. And he's like. You know, I, I just had one of my and that that's a whole different story, the advisor thing, but we can get into that. But he goes, I just had one of my clients, you know, wanting to take a second mortgage on the house to send their kid. And, you know, the kid was a good player, but, you know, he goes, I had to tell them, you're crazy. Put, don't touch that money. You know, you, I mean, people are doing crazy things and the anxiety and stress of this youth. And it's across the board in youth sports. Um particularly now with technology, you see these outbursts everywhere uh, on, uh, on the different uh, platforms. But, you know, I think people, especially us parents, have to step away. We don't need to be at every practice. I mean, listen, I, th- nobody loves watching their kid play or, or their kids. I, my daughter's still playing in lacrosse in college, five and a half hours up. You know, I'll drive there and go watch her play and then come back just because I enjoy her play. But at the end of the day, you have to step away and, and put yourself first and go do a workout, go play some tennis. I know you're a tennis guy. Go for a run and 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 step away from it for a second because the stress and anxiety is just out of control. There's no question. And I think a lot of the stress and anxiety is parent driven. And, and, and you're right. Most of the people that are involved are pretty good people. And I had a very unique experience this year because my, my son played for the New England Wolves last year up in Laconia, New Hampshire. And I'll tell you what, the New England parents said outside of, let's say, Boston, it's a whole different ballgame. I mean, the angriest I saw one of the parents on our team get during a game was a referee made a bad call. 
and a parent was sitting somewhere near me and said, I don't think I agree with that call. Like that was the extent <laughs> of the, I mean, on Long Island, that would have been, you know, you would have had hammers flying out of the stand. So like, I, I, it's a, it's a different world. And I do think, I do think with the money that gets spent, it does make people get a little crazy in terms of what expectations can be and their skin in the game type of thing. And, and that to me is a, is a big problem because I mean, the reality is, is this, What's best for the kid? Like, that's really what it comes down to. Don, Don Lucio, who used to be the coach at the University of Minnesota, what, said this best. He said this in a presentation a long time ago, and I, I was there, and I thought it was a great line. He said, everybody's out there hoping to get the college scholarship, but if if you spend half of what you would spend on all the lessons and all the everything and all of this and all of that and just put it away in a piggy bank, you would have your scholarship for your kid for the amount of money that you save. And it's it's an interesting point. Now, we all want our kids to go out and compete and have fun and that kind of thing, and that's a big part of it. And you do want to supplement where you can, but I also think that you've got to have some realistic expectations. And the white noise is what I think gets the parents and it gets the kids and it gets to the kids first. And then because it's getting to the kids and bothering the kids, then it bothers the parents. And that's where it starts to, to really manifest itself and cause some bigger picture issues. And, you know, I've told a lot of players, you and I had this conversation. I've told a lot of parents and a lot of players this, don't worry about who's getting tendered. Don't worry about who went in the USHL draft. Don't worry about who went in the North American League draft. You got one job as a player. Get better every day. That's it. And if you take care of you, the rest is going to take care of itself. And when you're in the locker room and you're on a team, find out who is in front of you on the depth chart. Find out from the coach what you need to do to get past that player on the depth chart and do it. You got, you've got a baby step, and you've got to look at this as a long process, not a short one. But if you worry about what everybody else is doing, it's going to affect what you're doing. So the, the number one piece of advice that I've given every player that's ever played for me, and I especially have given it to my son, who I talk to all the time about this, don't worry about who's playing where. Don't worry about who in your age group is going to the USHL next year. Don't worry about who's going to the North American League next year. Don't worry about who got tendered, who got drafted, who's going to this camp, who's going to that camp. You worry about you. You worry about you getting better. You worry about you improving. You worry about where you're skating and who you're skating with, and you let me worry about some of the coaches that you're working with because those are the guys that I know, and that's my world. But your job is to, if you want to, your job is to be in the gym and eat properly and rest properly and make sure your grades are bang on because the better your grades are, the more options you're going to have in terms of where you, you want to play if, if you get to that level. But the number one thing is you take care of you. I'll keep an eye out on the bigger picture with where you're going, but don't worry about anything else other than getting better every day. And if getting better every day in all facets of your life is not your number one priority, then that's where the anxiety starts to come in for everybody because now you're not maximizing yourself to your full potential, which makes our job as parents a little bit harder. Well, you know, you told me a stat once, and I don't know if you remember or if you can quote it offhand, but um, the, the number of D1 uh, uh, colleges in the country and then the difference between a 90 average and an 88 average cuts out the number of opportunities that have I forget what the stat was, but it was amazing to me when you said it. Um, it, yeah, it's real. It's true. Like if, if you're running, let's say 4.0 is tops, right. Or thing, at least it used to be. So right. if 4.0 is the top thing and you've got, you're running about a 4.0 or three, nine, your ACTs are good. There are 62 division programs right about now with some of the ones that we've just added. Right. So I mean, let's go with 62 for now. Then all 62 are available to you. If your skill level is that good. Now you drop to under a three, five, you, you may be looking at 50 schools. If right. you drop under a 3-0, like you might be looking at 30 schools. Right. So right. if you want 
to make it easier on yourself in terms of the options that you might have and where you want to play, then your grades matter. And I think that sometimes gets lost in translation. And there's a million different ways that kids are doing school now. I mean, that's like, that's a whole another component to it. COVID, I think retaught, no, not retaught, but COVID taught us all that you can learn in a lot of different ways and that the online system can work if applied properly. So if you're the kind of kid that wants to do online schooling because you want to spend some more time on the ice or in the gym and you can keep your grades up and you're in the right online institution, then good for you. I mean, that's what that's what my guy did. He, he's going to the University of Nebraska High School online. So all of his classes are online. That allowed him to be at the rink a little bit more, keep his grades up. He's doing almost like a college curriculum as a high school kid, but it works for him. It doesn't work for everybody, but it's working for him. It's allowing him to, to pursue what he wants to pursue. But that's the, the, I always say to him, don't ever go to the rink and leave schoolwork behind. Like if you don't get your schoolwork done, then you're going to be at the rink or you're going to be at the gym with the fact that you've got a project on your mind, which means you're not going to max out your workout because you're going to have something else that you're thinking about. We talk about that anxiety component. Right. Go to the rink with a clear mind. Get what you have to do done. Get your schoolwork done. Do it right. Do it once. Do it well. And then go to the rink with a clear mind. And I think that that is a huge, uh, huge formula for athletic success. Yeah, I agree. I think just going back to the youth uh, hockey, the younger kids, I think what I found, and hopefully this might help some parents, is that uh, as young kids, and you, you understand the kids doing it because they're kids, right? And they see highlights and, you know, success is measured by number of goals from parents. You know what I mean? So um, I think the parents' expectations uh, at a young age, when they're watching their kids at a young age, is score, 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 success. My kids this, my kids that. And, I, you know, it was eye-opening to me because I'm not a hockey guy. I mean, I guess I am now, but I never played the game. But the point being is that it's not about goals as the kids get older. You know, it's about the back check. It's about, you know, the grind, right? So it's, like, amazing to me um, that coaches – that are coaching young kids. And maybe they just don't know. Maybe they're volunteers or, or what have you. But and, and I have the benefit of experience. But a lot of those kids that scored a lot of goals when they were younger, they hit 12, 13, 14 years old. They kind of get lost because they don't know how to play the game because they've always been, oh, my God, I have to score goals because my dad or my mom wants me to score four goals this game. Right? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what. Here's where it gets interesting. And it's, it's a good point you bring up. Here's where it gets interesting. And it's funny because Stan Van Gundy did a great presentation on this on the basketball side about player development and, and where it's gone a little bit off the rails on this exact notion. So we talk about players needing to score goals and run numbers. And you know, I'll tell you, this is an 11-year NHL scout. Like, you know, numbers were a part of it, but they're not the whole thing. And your, your point on there are other parts of the game that matter. That's true. But I'll tell you this. Everybody that's playing NCAA Division One college hockey, especially the forwards, I guarantee you at one point led their team in scoring. But not all of them can be on the first line. Not all of them can be on the power play. So as you get older, your game needs to evolve. You need to develop. I mean, hopefully you have an A game, but you got to have a B game and a C game too because those are the kinds of games that are going to get you to the next level because not everybody can, like I said, not everybody can be the number one center on their team. And, you know, I'll tell you a great story. Tom Fitzgerald is now the GM of the, the Devils. I mean, I knew Tommy back when he was playing in Springfield of the, the American League. And, you know, back then he was a high draft pick of the Islanders and and was touted to, to, to be a real good offensive player. He played at Providence College, scored buckets full of goals, was scoring a ton of goals in the American League. And, you know, they're talking about bringing him up to the Islanders. Now, this is like the early 90s. 
And he's looking at that roster and he's like, okay, so I've got Brent Sutter and Brian Trottier in the one and two holes. Now I'm not taking those guys spots. So I better do something else. So he evolved his game as a minor leaguer so that when he got to the NHL, he could be a really good third or fourth center to start and know what that role entailed and kill penalties and then wait for his opportunity to potentially be a different kind of NHLer. Now, Tommy is a real good NHL player, but no one's ever going to confuse him with Brian Trottier or, or Brent Sutter. But he carved out a tremendous NHL career because he figured out what he was and he expanded his game. And that is the biggest message we can give to young players all over the place is, yeah, it's great to score, but if you can't do anything else, it becomes a problem later on when everybody else can do a lot of the same things that you can. And, and what it comes down to is the coaches. So many coaches at the youth level have such big egos about wanting to win. Everybody wants to win their 12U championship and their 14U championship. It's insane. I mean, I, I work with a, with, a, with a guy. I'll leave his name out of it. But I, I, I was an assistant coach with a 13U team. And my fellow assistant coach said to me, you know, we're talking about player development. He said, well, this is 13U AAA. We're here to win. And I looked at him. I said, are you kidding? I said, I understand you play in the NHL, but are you nuts? We're not here to win. We're here to make these players better so they can play 14U. I said, that's it. That is our job. At 13, you and I had a win. I said, now we, we we can let them play to win, and we can work on things that will allow them to win games, but we're not here to win. And the problem is, is these coaches who think that they're here to win at 10U, 12U, 14U, you get a really good offensive player, and nobody wants to screw with them because they're afraid it's going to affect their bottom line of winning games. So, yeah, I got a kid who's one-dimensional. All he does is score, never back checks, but he's winning me games. That's great. What favor did I do that kid when he gets the 15 and 16 you? And now all of a sudden he's got to figure out how to play in the team structure. And he gets uh, he gets south of the red line and has no idea what to do first. So did we help that kid or did we hurt that kid at our own benefit? And that's where part of the problem comes in. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, listen, I, uh, I was just listening to a podcast with uh, Russell Wilson was on with um, Greg Olson. Greg Olson's got a youth sport, a former tight end, um, a youth sports. Uh, I think it's called Youth Sports, actually, a podcast. Great podcast. But he was talking with Russell Wilson, and they both have kids now, you know, and they 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 both coach their kids to a certain extent. But, you know, they were talking about winning sucks, right? And I'm sorry, losing sucks. You know, you, you, you want to play to win. And I think what you just said, you mean that. You want to teach the kids to play to win. But the coaches aren't there to win. Like winning is a product of teaching the kids how to play right, how to play hard, how to be consistent, how to take their role, how to improve. And hopefully that turns into a win because winning is definitely better than losing. But, you know, you're not there to win at all costs. I, I, you know, it's funny in the hockey world here in Long Island, unfortunately, we're not in Minnesota where high school hockey matters, but um you know, the, 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 uh, the debate all the time with the kids growing up is like, do I want to play, you know, JV hockey for my school or, or a high school hockey for my school? And I remember um, one year there was a, a real top player here on Long Island and went to school with Johnny. And, you know, he ended up playing um, a year. I think it was JV hockey. I'm not even sure. But the coach, you know, he didn't make any of the games during the year because he was playing you know, club hockey. And then, but he was on the, the roster for the JV team. And then he made it to the playoffs, right? For the JV. And hadn't been at the, at the, the at any games all year. The coach was double shifting him. 
to win. And like, here are all these kids that played the whole season that worked really, really hard to improve. And here comes this kid, and at no fault of the kid that he was that good a player, but here he comes and now he's being double shifted and they win the championship. Like, really? <laughs> like, really? Like, is that what you're teaching? Like, all right, this kid that wasn't part of the team all year, but he was on the roster because we wanted to bring him in for the playoffs to win. He's being double shifted. It's crazy. No, I get it. Like, there, we have a saying in youth hockey, like, if you pick them, you play them. And I, I've watched way too many youth teams where, you know, coach picks his team and then basically the top two lines play a ton and the top four defensemen play a ton. And, you know, you get into a close game in October, that means nothing. And, you know, heaven forbid you, you, you lose that game. And, you know, it's, it's the end of the world for, for you as a coaching staff. And you know, so you, you, but you rely on your, you're, you're constantly relying on your horses. And, and I understand as you get older, you got to earn some ice time, you know, and, and you've got to learn to, to earn your ice in key moments. Like I do think there are great teaching moments and who plays and who doesn't play, but it has to be a little bit more at the, at the older levels than the younger levels, the younger levels, these, these kids have to play. And I can't handle the parent who attend you and 12 you is like, well, I can't believe they played our third line when we needed a goal late in the game. Well, you know what? Some of those third line kids are going to be, your, you know, could be your first line kids later on in the year, depending on injury or whatever. And everybody's got to learn how to play in different situations. And, and yes, there is a skill to shutting down a period. There is a skill to shutting down a game. If you have a one goal lead and certain players are going to be better at it than others. And those players will manifest themselves a little bit more at the older ages. But if you don't get everybody through, so you can, so you can teach them how to play in those scenarios, they can experience those scenarios. Then what are we really doing out there? Cause 10, you 12, you 14, you should not look like, nor have the same ramifications as players that are playing for their supper or coaches that are coaching for their livelihood. Because I, I don't know a whole lot of youth hockey coaches that have ever gotten fired for going 500. They, they generally get let, let go or dismissed because they either have a bad rapport with the kids, a bad rapport with the parents, they're bad people, whatever the case is, they don't communicate well. Those are the guys that, and, and, and women that lose their jobs in youth hockey. But the, the ones that consistently build competitive programs where they're moving their players on to the next level, and those players are continuing on because you gave them the right building blocks to, to become a good player. Like those are the coaches that are worth their weight in gold. And those are the coaches you want to play for. Don't worry about silver sticks and league championships and chasing trophies at that age. You want to just be able to chase the ability to get better every day. If you've got a coach that's committed to it, then you've scored. And that's why I always tell parents, be real wary of where you're going next year. Know the coaches, know what the program's goals are, and get some feedback from people that have been through it that your kid – is going to be a really good developmental situation. And the, the other thing I want to touch on real quick, Dave, is um, multiple sports. I think, you know, the whole point of extended chill is the stress and the anxiety, right? Both for the kids and the parents. And I think, you know, I'm a huge advocate of playing multiple sports. Um, if, if, you know, the athlete, the young athlete is interested uh, in other sports. Um, I've definitely had the experience where coaches have tried to shut down uh, multiple sports. And now, um, you know, particularly with hockey, it's become a, a, a full year round sport, you know, I mean, with the spring leagues and with, you know, practices and to, to your point, um, tryouts in, in the spring, right after the season ends. Um, so, um, I think multiple sports allows the young athlete just to forget about the stress and anxiety of that one season, get a new friend set, start a new season new experiences, forget about the skill set. I mean, lacrosse and hockey obviously go very well together. 
Um, I know my son loved to play lacrosse, played lacrosse his whole um, time. Um, and then, you know, the coaches started saying, well, you can't play lacrosse now, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think just to relieve the anxiety, relieve the stress, I think kids need to play multiple sports if they're interested as long as possible. Just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on that. Well, think about this. If you're involved in a heavy-duty team sport like hockey, like lacrosse, like football, sometimes getting away from it all and being able to compete against yourself might be the best thing ever because, again, you're, there's not a lot of white noise surrounding you, and it's you against you, which sometimes is the best competition you can have. And I found two sports as a kid growing up on the beach that were great for me were surfing and swimming. I, they build courses. The Long, build- Long Beach guy, I was sure you were going to say wrestling. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, don't forget, I was a Rockaway Beach guy first. So, but I mean, you know, we, we surfed and swam and hung out at the beach and went in the ocean. And, you know, from the time that we were kids straight through to high school and even through college. So I think those two sports is, as full body developmental sports are great for hockey and invasion sports are really good, whether it be basketball or soccer or lacrosse or tennis. I mean, sports where there's, you have to build depth perception and speed and agility and reflex. I, I, I think those sports are great. Listen, Ping pong is, you, you say what you want about it, but like ping pong is a great sport to play, especially if you're a goalie or you're a catcher, because those are sports where you're processing and depth perception and moving and reacting quickly to and, and having to move ballistically. You know, badminton is another one of those sports that builds agility. There's a lot of other sports out there that can supplement the sport that you're playing. And if you if you specialize early, you know, that that's where you can build a little angst because now you're starting to look for faster results and Listen, the body develops as it develops. You have that old thing, you can water a plant as much as you want. It's going to grow as it grows. Like, the, you know, kids are the same way. Like, they grow when they grow and they pop when they pop. And, you know, when it happens, it happens. And uh, the ability to cross train and the ability to play other sports, I think, gives you full body development. Sometimes those other sports you're playing more just for the fun of it than the competitive nature of it. So now you're out there, as you just mentioned, the social component comes in. Listen, a lot of us older guys love going out there and playing, you know, beer league softball or, that kind of thing, because why? Because it's the camaraderie. Like you, you want to compete, and that's all well and good. But, but it's it's being out there with the boys and and hanging out in the sun and having a good time. Like that's a part of it. Kids need that, and I think parents sometimes lose sight of it. And the kid who wants to go play sandlot football with his friends after school instead of going to the ring for a private lesson, like that's okay in the spring. I think it's really important that these kids get off skates for, or get off the intensity of the everyday skate once their season ends and go out and enjoy themselves so they that they want to play even more. And I'll tell you a quick story. Last night, Ryan was on skates for the first time after being in Florida with me for a week. He said, my legs felt great last night. They haven't felt that good since the season ended. You know, sometimes a break is a really good thing. Well, you know, to add to that, uh, two things. Um, Beer league softball, I'm not playing unless they institute a rule that uh, those 50, 60-year-old guys do not wear only spandex. And the guys that, you know, the guys that want to play shortstop, you know, those guys that might have been a college athlete for a minute, they think they still have it. The shorts need to go over the spandex. Agreed. And I think that I think that needs to be a rule. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, I was just talking with my wife. Um, after uh, Johnny's season finished this year over at Nationals, he gets back from Michigan. And, you know, he, he was upset. He took a couple of days, wasn't uh, real communicative, kind of like, you know, whatever, had to process things. Um, and... After that, Dave, like the kid's personality, like he was hanging with his sisters, hanging with us, talking, laughing. Like they're so busy during the season. 
and they go through so much with school and with with the you know three or four nights and the games on the weekends they do need that break and it was amazing Lori and I were talking about it's like wow it's like a it's like a, a, another kid here it's like unbelievable and it was just nice to see him to exhale for a minute listen you know you have to work you have to do your thing you have your goals I get it but it was just nice to see him exhale a little bit and you know, to your point of Ryan saying, hey, my legs feel great physically. I think mentally uh, also the kids need to let it go for a little while and, and to to kind of regenerate, rejuvenate and, and go back to it with a passion, you know. What's the old John Tortorella line when the Lightning won the Cup in 2004 or five, whatever they wanted? He said rest is a weapon. You know what it is, but mental rest is a huge weapon. When your mind is clear and you can process and think clearly, you become a much better player. And there are times where you've got to, divorce yourself from the game a little bit so that you can come back with renewed vigor to play it. And that, and that's why those kids who spent all summer on the ice, three, four days a week, by the time September rolls around, they're not excited about getting the season started. They're exhausted and their right. bodies are exhausted. And these are kids right. whose bodies are still developing. And if you don't give them some time to, to rest and heal uh, mentally and physically, that's when the injuries and the burnout come in. That's when the kids decide they don't want to play anymore. And for goalies, especially, with all the stress that they're putting on their labrums with the butterfly style and, and a lot of them butterflying improperly. I mean, we're losing kids to injuries like crazy. And these kids never, ever get back into it because of how badly damaged their leg, their, their labrums are. And the fact that they're not giving it any chance to rest and relax after a long season. So I, I do think that's important and you got to get away from it. Like you just mentioned with, with, with Johnny, I mean, like sometimes you get three or four days away and you become a person again and you, and then you reassimilate back into the game and, and that's when the excitement starts up because now you're getting back into it after being able to evaluate what you just went through. I think that's hugely important. And to me, uh, the mental health component of our young athletes uh, is, I think, deteriorated a little bit. And it's because of the pressure that they're putting on themselves to play, play, play their sport every day from a young age on. And I think we've proven that that doesn't have to be the case. Yeah, I think that's a great message. Uh, you know, that's what Extended Chill is about and taking it away from sports. Um, you mentioned resetting uh, and, and, and getting the foundation right. And, and that's what we try to encourage people to do. Both as parents, you know, as parents, we have responsibilities. Um, um, you know, we're always helping others, right? We rarely put ourselves first and we want to uh, encourage people to say, hey, take an hour for yourself take two hours for yourself if you need it or just go for a 15 minute walk or a 20 minute run and and really reset and you know uh take care of your mental fitness so you can help others real quick before we finish up a couple of things uh college hockey this year any uh surprises university of denver obviously uh the champions uh what's your thoughts i'll tell you this in january we're getting ready to do a game uh, because we do the nchc package on the cbs sports network and we're getting ready to do our opening game, and it was St. Cloud State at Denver. And I remember watching both teams and getting ready to prepping for the game. And I'm watching film on both teams, and I'd seen a bit of them in the first half. And I said to myself, you know, this could be the national championship game right here. Like, these two teams could wind up in Boston playing on April 9th. They're both that good. And St. Cloud State had some ups and downs during the year with some injuries and stuff, and, and they fell off the pace a little bit, even though I thought they were a pretty good team. But, like, I thought Denver was the best team in the country. They were the best combination – of real good players and real good team that I had seen all year. And I said it throughout the second half on many an occasion. And I'll tell you what, the, the, the way that they had to win that national title game at Minnesota state was, I mean, they were a beast to deal with. They were big, well-coached, smart, skilled. 
They had a lot of savvy to them. I mean, I, I liked their team a ton, and they were great. And they had Denver bottled up and in fits going to the third period of that game. And what Denver do? Denver just started simplifying their game and throwing pucks at the net and, and wound up turning it around and, and winning a national championship that I thought that, that they deserved. But it just it just goes to show, like, you, you just never know. <laughs> Sometimes it can be will over skill uh, in, in certain kinds of games. But I, I really like the way that Denver played. I like their team. And, you know, I, I'm not sure there were a lot of big surprises this year. This was one of those years where it was really wide open. There were a lot of very, very good teams this year. And But I think in the, in the long run, the best team won. Now, as we start to get into some new programs coming in and the portal and players changing places like crazy, I think we're, we're about to enter a new landscape. And I think that one of the things with college hockey, and this is not a popular topic, and it's going to come back and get me skewered at one point, but I think at some point we talk about in the NCAA about how it's an amateur sport and, and, and college hockey is college hockey, and the NCAA never really talks a lot about how college hockey is a developmental league for the NHL. And one of the reasons is, is the NHL doesn't give any developmental money to the NCAA because of the amateur status, unlike major junior. But when you take a look at what the NCAA, what NCAA hockey is, kids are getting room and board paid for on scholarship. They're getting an education paid for on scholarship. You know, they're getting meals provided for them on the road, that kind of thing. So, I mean, they're to some extent, they meet some of the qualifications of like what a pro is. Right. So, I mean, like it's, it's kind of a weird dynamic. I think college hockey just got to figure out what it is. Like what's its role. It, it develops players for the NHL. So should it be marketing itself that way? Should, should that be an open discussion? I, College Hockey Inc. talks all the time about how 33 to 35% of the players playing in the NHL played in the NCAA. You know what? You're a developmental league for the National Hockey League There's, and, and pro hockey all around the world. There's no question about it. So I think that as, te- as we continue to expand with teams, what do we do with the conundrum of major junior players being eligible to play in the NCAA when their junior eligibility expires? how to maybe better coordinate the USHL, the North American League, and the Canadian Major Junior Leagues in terms of amateur status, and how do we build a bigger player pool, not only for programs in the NCA, but for players that want to play here, especially the North American ones. So I think you, you've got a lot going on that college hockey has to discuss. I think the game is really, really healthy right now, but I do think that it's entering a different phase and probably has to figure out exactly what it is over the next three or four years as it continues to evolve forward. Is college hockey willing to discuss that? I, I, you know, I'm not sure. I think that privately and off the record, there are a lot of discussions that probably happen among coaches and programs. But the the, the way the landscape is, like you've got some bigger programs and some smaller programs, and that's you know the old expression, "What's good for the goose isn't always good for the gander," right? So, right. I, I think that I think getting 62 programs to agree on a lot of things can be tough because everybody's got to keep an eye out on their bottom line, which is important. If you overextend yourself from a program budget perspective, you can really put your program in dire straits. It's not unlike pro organizations overspending for players and having it not work. And, you know, all of a sudden the cupboard becomes bare. So I do think there's a lot out there to discuss. I think there's a lot of interesting points and, and interesting ideas that could make college hockey better. And I do think there's some out there that are dangerous that everybody has to be a little bit more aware of. But you're always going to have that scenario where can you find a common ground? where what's good for North Dakota is good for Bentley. And I and and that's no disrespect to Bentley. I'm just saying a big school versus a smaller school, right. pedigree school versus a school that's a little bit more off the, the, the beaten path, but has a good program and a great new rank. But can you find what's good for the top 15 schools in the NCAA in terms of size and prestige and success 
can the bottom 15 programs in men's division one hockey find common ground with them so that the entire industry wins? That's always going to be a big challenge. Sounds like a challenge, but it makes sense. I think in the overall uh, landscape, it certainly makes sense. Um, and I'd be remiss before we leave, uh, you know, being Long Island guys, uh, Coach Riley over at LIU. Uh, I know you were able to see one or two of his games live. Um, what do you think of uh, having a D1 uh, D1 college hockey program out here in Long Island? And and, and what do you think of the, the season they had this past year? Because I, I, I saw some games and, you know, they were gritty. I mean, I, I think what you can tell about a coach is that maybe if you don't have the depth of talent, how hard your kids work, those kids worked hard. And oh, they, you know, Riles is a grinder. And he comes from a family of grinders. I mean, that is some hockey lineage that that he brings to the table. And uh, boy, what I've loved to sit around as a young kid at some of the family dinners, listening to his grandfather and his father and his uncle all sit around and talk hockey. And, you know, I was lucky enough to to know his grandfather. And, you know, when I used to go do games up at West Point or scout up there or whatever. And and Jack was around. It was great to, to sit in Brian or Rob's office. And when Jack was around and just listen to some of his old stories and talk hockey with him, I mean, you, you, you almost felt like you were getting an education by sitting around and, and talking with, with, with those guys. So, uh, you know, Brett brings a lot of pedigree to the job. He brings a lot of passion to the job. There is no doubt in my mind that LIU was the perfect example of a team that takes on the personality of the coach because they played hard. They played tenacious. They got after it. They chased loose pucks. They, they didn't make it easy on opponents. And, you know, I don't think they played a game this year against a Division One opponent where they were the more talented team in the game. But there are times where you couldn't tell because they really got after it and, and they play with a lot of pride. And I think it is huge that Long Island has a division one men's program. They give Billy Martinoff and the LIU gang a lot of credit on the men's and the women's side for what they've created during a pandemic, nonetheless, to get these programs up and going and, and get them into a good rank to play in and, and to continue to build this program. And I, you know, they've, they've got some obstacles ahead of them in terms of getting to a conference and that kind of thing. But with the transfer portal, it is probably easier to build a program now than it ever has been. It's almost like free agency. So they'll be able to benefit from the portal in terms of getting in some good players probably faster than they would have. But to me, markets like New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, it is so important, I think, for them to have major college hockey programs in there, which is why I would love to see either Penn bring back its program or Villanova expand into one. I would love to see in Chicago whether UIC brings back their program or Northwestern jumps into the fold. I would love to see it. Illinois is relatively close by. And, and now we've got LIU in there and, you know, maybe a bigger brand name school like Hofstra decides that it's time to jump in. And you get a second program on the island. Trust me, there's enough players between the Mid-Atlantic and New England and Pennsylvania that if you had a couple of programs on Long Island, you wouldn't have a shortage of players if you wanted to go local. Awesome. And, and very last question, ping pong table, you and Ryan. Who comes out the winner? Ping pong would probably be him. Because I tend to overhit. I, I feel like you're going to tennis, but go ahead. But on the tennis court, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what. It's funny because my older son, Jared, played high school tennis, and he's a pretty good player. Like, he's pretty nifty in terms of, like, how he manipulates the court. But Ryan is turning into a really, really good tennis player. He's got a one-handed – he's got a two-handed backhand missile that he loves to use. And – and he's an athletic kid. So for the first time this year, we were down in Florida last week. He, we, when we played 21, he actually beat me. He beat me two out of four games. And, you know, good for him. And if he thinks it's going to continue to be that easy for the rest of the summer, he's got another thing coming. But I uh, I love the fact that he has picked up another game. I think that's important. And we just, 
it's just good father and son time, you know, and my wife plays too. So it's good family time. And, and that's the part we, we enjoy about it. Ping pong though. I would tend to think he'll probably does. He's got a little more finesse than I do. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Dave, I appreciate you coming on uh, a lot of great stuff here. And uh, as always, uh, um, thanks for all your uh, advice to these young parents playing hockey. And I think whether your son plays hockey or any other sport, um, the stuff that you talk about is really important in terms of development, um, both uh, on the field and off the field for young kids. So keep doing what you're doing. And uh, I appreciate you. And thanks for coming on the Extended Chill Podcast. And we'll see you soon. You got it. Thanks for having me on. All right, man. Welcome to episode four of Extend the Chill podcast. We are lucky enough to have good friend uh, Michael Karsh with us. Uh, Michael, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. No, it's, 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 it's great to have you on. I appreciate you taking the time. And, you know, Michael, I guess it's been about 10 years um, since we met. Uh, mutual friend Kenny Dichter uh, introduced you to uh, Juice Press. Um, which mm-hmm. a client of mine, Mark Teixeira, the Yankees, was involved in. We got mm-hmm. to know each other a little bit. So over the course of the yeah. last 10 years, Definitely. I've grown the friendship. And certainly you. you have grown Juice Press uh, exponentially, and we'll get into that. But uh, one of the interesting points, I told you extend the chill here. What we're doing is we're just trying to bring anxiety, you know, people's anxiety and stresses and how they, you know, make sure they have an outlet. I'm on, to re- I'm on the conference call. I'm sorry. And how they kind of release the anxiety and stress. I mean, look at you here. You know, you're trying to do something. You got different response. It's, it's that kind of a day and that kind of a life for everybody. Yeah. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, you and I have been talking about our kids a lot lately when we get together. And um, on the show here, we've been talking about youth sports and how the landscape's changed and how competitive it is. And I know my son with hockey, um, very competitive at a very early age. And I know your oldest, Sam, we talk about him, you know, he was a basketball guy. He had to be. He was a New York City kid. Um, and uh, how the AAU experience was for you going through that process as he started to develop as a player and the stress in terms of AAU ball, what coach you play for, you know, so if and, and what kind of a sports dad you are. Because I'm a quiet guy. I stand in the corner. don't talk to anybody. Mm. We just get to see you know, how you are at, at the games. But talk a little bit about the process when st- you, you looked at Sam and like, you know what, he's developing, he's a player, where should he play now? That type of thing. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, I, I started out by saying that um, I, I do feel like the suburban pressure is different than the urban pressure, at least our urban pressure. Um, watching my friends, you know, I live in Manhattan. Um, and I think while what I, The, the, what my friends and I see is is that we're we're influenced more by like is there an opportunity to maybe playing in college, and that's the best hope would be to find something. And the sports are generally fairly limited by um, indoor, like by the nature of New York. So those are kind of the two variables: is less space. New York City, you know, Northeast weather and 
um, trying to, to do something in, in college. And, and if, as a fallback, at least your kids um, social, uh, their, their socialization and their happiness is driven by that. So like you said, you know, Sam, like a lot of New York city kids got driven towards hoops. Um, you know, we did the baseball thing early on. Uh, definitely that was driven by me and my own history of, of growing up in literally being such a big piece of my life. Um, That's the Yankees, Michael. I don't even know. Uh, both. I mean, you know, I'm a Long Island guy, so I was a Mets guy. And then um, eventually it was convened for me to be fair weather in the sense that my father and grandfather from the Bronx and they love the Yankees. <laughs> so as the Mets fell apart, uh, I we, we transitioned. But, you know, baseball, I've definitely seen some success for some individual kids more on what I see in New York City is at the pitcher level, if it's going to be very few position players, but I see pitching and Sam never really, you know, was ready, you know, for pitching. You know, he tried, it was okay. But, and then um, in hoops, he loved it. It was really, I would say it's more, it was more for him like um, a great way to be exposed to a new group of people and travel a bit. Um, it, you know, he, he had his ups and downs of, um, realizations of where his upside was and lack of upside, um, seeing kids, incredible kids from all over, uh, the Northeast. Um, I think overall that was a great experience. Um, and then ultimately though, um, it ended up being a great high school experience, but it was clear that it wasn't going to be his thing. So, you know, for, for me as a parent, in terms of that, you know, I have my own, I, I do think like we all live to some extent based upon, you know, like I said, baseball was driven by me. Uh, hoops was driven by me. Um, and he did like his, I don't feel badly about that, but um, what now turned out is that the whole time we didn't realize, but, the things he's enjoyed the most have, he just kind of fell upon late because of COVID, which was he played football for the first time this year, just walked on and, and um, because there was no season really last season and he was the leading receiver and that led to him now running track. And, and uh, he just got um, invited yesterday to the uh, national Nike high school championship in in Oregon based on his qualifying time in the hundred and um so who knew you know we we didn't we didn't realize this whole time and he never would have done winter's track because of hoops and now he really wants he's going to Duke either way based on um academics and now he wants to try to walk on to Duke and so I'm like running in a way from <laughs> anxiety it, there's no anxiety because we never thought this was anything we already have college um, and so now it's like, um, you know, we're working backwards and trying to find some support for him to try to continue his progress. But um, it's it's been it's been really exciting to watch. And I have a lot to say on the on the parenting part of it uh, and why I'm driven by it. But uh, I'm, I'll stop there for now. No, well, I think I think you hit on a good point. I think as parents, particularly, you know, me, when my kids you know, I played baseball myself. And, um, 
I found that it took up a lot of my time. I still have great relationships from my high school baseball team. It was actually very funny. I was at a tournament, hockey tournament with my son, Johnny. Um, he has a teammate. We've been playing together, great parents. We've been very friendly. So um, his dad says, yeah, my, uh, my brother's coming over to watch the game. His brother, I ended up playing high school baseball with his brother at Powell Memorial Academy at 61st. How sick is that? That's why I love New York, these stories. But um, I think his parents, I think you hit on the socialization part. Um, I, all my kids got into sports and I loved it because it kept them busy. I mean, you want to keep them busy and, you know, the, the work ethic, obviously everything that translates into becoming a successful human being, I think is involved in sports at a young age. I think where we've kind of gone off the rails and I say we as, you know, an industry, industry, it is industry now, unfortunately, but at a young age, I think people and coaches and it's across the board in every sport. They're put, listen, the coaches, not, I'm not trying to denigrate coaches, but at the end of the day, they're salespeople, right? They want the best athletes. Mm-hmm. It's a business. And I think it gets too serious too early. And mm-hmm. I think when you were just talking about Sam, he's a high school senior now, right? Yes. So like from a development standpoint, like I had a, a good friend and we talked about it in the last podcast. My son's teammates were signing, were going on Instagram at 14 years old saying, I'm committed to Providence College, 14 years old, playing hockey. Like, And I called my buddy Dave, Dave Starman. I said, Dave, what the hell is this? He said, relax. If it's 16 and 17, he still loves the sport, you'll figure it out. So I think the push to a younger age and more seriousness is really screwing everybody up. It's putting more pressure mm-hmm. on where should my kid play? What am I doing wrong? And yeah. really, I, I love the fact that Sam has now found another sport that he could get very serious with over the course of the next three to four years in college on his own terms, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, look, you step back and look at the college process, which I think obviously mathematically for 99% of us or more, you know, that's best case scenario. And then you can parse it out within college to help you with your acceptance. Did it help you get a scholarship? Did it help you get a job because you also have that on your resume and call after college, you know, with few exception, that's, you know, at least for my kids school, you know, like school, that would be the case, you know, maybe, you know, the last time somebody played in the farm system in baseball was like eight years ago and, and that's of any sport. So I, I think we have to keep for out for our group of friends. I have to keep, you know, keep that in perspective, but, the co- what I just haven't gone through the college process and watched my my son goes to all my kids go to Riverdale or you know Riverdale Country School, mm-hmm. which ha- which does have one of the best. I will make an advertisement and say it might have the best track record in in all of New York in colleges in the last few years. Um, One hundred twenty five kids, ten are going to Duke, uh, seven are going to Harvard. Um, that's just a little sample. Of that's because you have to run really fast through uh, Van Cortlandt Park, Mike. <laughs> I'd like to say it's not that tough of a school. And, 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 um, and the reason I bring it up is I've seen all the angles um, being played. And what struck me is that for the Ivy League schools and for the, the really good small 
schools in the three I would the tufts like that that you know that group as you, you fully are aware of those school schools 25 percent of the kids are filling an athletic spot in the school that is enormous that's crazy think about how competitive it is to get into a school to know that that's the percentage means that if when you go through all the considerations that they have right now diversity inclusion and financial packages you know and balance of of genders and international students for 25 percent no matter what to be in those schools so the first early decision school that came out was Dartmouth. Now, Dartmouth is a smaller school than Harvard, but they have the same programs. So like 30% of all the kids fill a slot on the athletic program. So when you take into consideration, it's a very big legacy school. And you think about the 30% and you think about all the other considerations. Riverdale got... I think we got two kids into Dartmouth, which is was an achievement, but a lot of kids got blown out of the water there. And one of the two kids who got in uh, is rowing crew there. Um, and one of the kids in Sam's Duke group is running is swimming at, at Duke. And the kid who got into MIT from from uh, the only kid who got into MIT from our from our high school is playing soccer at MIT. None of these kids are going to go pro, and frankly, none of them are getting any money. Um, but they got their dream, which was to get into their first choice, which for them was was gold. Yeah, and 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 con- and continue to compete um, on the and athletic field and in yeah. the classroom. You know, yeah. and I think yeah, I think that's important as well. But it, it's interesting because my my middle child, Peyton, right? My right. my Peyton. Yeah, Paige, my oldest Paige, she played soccer. Um, she, mm-hmm. she played soccer in high school, very good, very competitive. Decided to play club soccer in college. Yeah. Had a great experience playing club soccer, which I highly recommend to anybody that wants to continue their athletic career. But Peyton, as a senior in high school, mm-hmm. she wasn't going to play lacrosse. She played in school. She was a good player. She ends up going up to um, Hobart William Smith, yeah. good academic school. Um, yeah. meet the, cause the coach asked for her. She met with her, met with the coach. Next mm-hmm. thing you know, she comes out, she goes, dad, I got to go to that school. I want to play for that coach. Amazing. And, and so her experience now, and I'd be interested like to hear you, you know, you're the CEO yeah. of Juice Press. Yeah. Interestingly now, um, she's in her senior year. Um, mm-hmm. she's, she's won division championships. She's starting to get accolades. She was honorable mention all American this year. That's great. So like, going into and she's going into finance mm-hmm. so going into that business such a competitive business when she goes in and puts that on her resume people yeah. take a look at that and say hey wow look at her yeah. resume in athletics she's competitive yeah. and that could translate to our business does that make sense oh absolutely i mean um i definitely look at things like that on the resume and anybody who has a kid at the college age is aware that division three athletics has become like a division one commitment. Um, and, and it's, so it's like all anybody's playing a college sport these days, it's a massive commitment and achievement to achieve good academics, but also, you know, employers 
are very cognizant of the attention deficit issues of kids and which is justified, you know, that it's understandable that our society, you know, I, we have, you know, all my three kids are all different kind of learners. Um, but my point is, is that by the time you're employing it, like it, it's these days to have a long attention span um, and have that discipline is something that's a bit of a, a lost art in, in, uh, in, in that generation. Um, so to know that somebody has that focus and, and commitment um, and is going to be determined and not think that you get a soccer trophy or lacrosse trophy for showing up, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big deal. And, and, uh, I will say, I, I don't know if your daughter already committed to a job. Did she commit to a job already or? She's, uh, doing a, uh, an internship this summer at, uh, right. what was that? Oh, Sumimoto? The Japanese yeah. Some bank. Japanese bank. Yeah. yeah. I, will, I will say that I, you know, because you know, my history is in the finance industry. So I still have ties to it. Um, there's never been more exciting jobs, well-paid jobs for kids coming out of college in New York City than I can ever remember. It's it's a, despite COVID, it, it, it's a golden age of uh, opportunity for, for kids to be making great money and meet other great kids, I call them kids, but 22 through 26 year olds. I see it all the time, and um, and so it's very exciting. Uh, my my cousin uh, pitched at Northwestern. He's now a coming on a second year out of Northwestern and living the dream in New York. You know, everybody's got like two roommates, and they're living. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're still, still spending a lot of money on rent, but they love it. And it's just amazing the scope of people he's meeting and the opportunity set in front of them. So. Um, obviously, you know, the work from home thing is a different thing and requires a different discipline and it's becoming more hybrid. So I think it's it's very exciting. And I, I do think uh, it's great that she's done all that. And I'm sure she'll be rewarded for it. Yeah, I mean, she's she's, uh, you know, you know, my wife, Lori, was ninth in the world in CrossFit at 45. And you know, I remember a time when Peyton um, was 13, 14, and they were like this. They, they, and I was looking at them both. And I'm saying, you are exactly the same person. You, you, you're, you're driven. I was trying to convince Lori, like, hey, listen, you guys are going to be best friends. You're going to be, I'm telling you. And sure enough, that competitive drive, which got Lori again to to that level globally, which is sick, is, sick. is what drives Peyton. And uh, I see it every day, so it's great. And um, but but yeah. you know, she's yeah. She's excited to to get to Manhattan this summer, do the internship. Sure. She's going to live with a couple of folks, and uh, and it's right. going to be great. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on while I have you is culture. You know, you know whether it's yeah. sports culture, you hear that a lot now. Like Johnny's yeah. going to play junior hockey. You mm-hmm. know, they talk about him fitting into the culture, and mm-hmm. you know, your story with Juice Press. You know, mm-hmm. now as a CEO, originally as an yeah. investor, and looking yeah. at the opportunity in a plant based. Um, world and where that was going and and made you dive in full blown um yeah your culture that you've created you know with your retail locations i mean the retail story is ridiculous over 75 stores now but i called you the other day i called you yesterday because i went into the 32nd street store at juice press uh at the bottom of the statue of liberty i had to get a few drinks i needed ice because you know the bags if they threw ice in the bag it would leak right yeah your store was crazy crowded 
The girl at the register, Michaela, I said, Michaela, do you have some ice? Sure, I can get you ice. She didn't have anything to put it in, right? She took about four minutes to figure out how to pack ice in and make sure that it didn't leak in my bag. And it was just, listen, I mean, you have to have a great product, right? But the culture yeah. you've created in terms of customer service at, at, at Juice Press is really a difference maker to me. I mean, you can go in any of your stores and your employees are engaged. They believe in what, what, you're, what you're, you're talking about in terms of plant-based. They're knowledgeable. And, yeah. you know, Michaela just blew me away. That little simple thing she did for me, I, I was just like, I'm coming back. You know yeah. what I mean? That, and I think an example of that, and I'll back up and explain that, is the fact as soon as you wrote that, I immediately forwarded it to her, the area manager in charge of a bunch of stores, including that one, and the head of HR and the COO, because I wanted them to, you know, show her that, you know, the respect for doing that. Um, and, and so, you know, that's part of it, but overall, you're right. I mean, probably my biggest personal change, um, since, you know, I graduated business school 25 years ago, I was in the finance, finance world for, you know, at least 18 of it, um, was, you know, culture didn't mean much, um, to me early on. And, um, and that's because I worked for small firms, finance firms hedge funds where personality was, you know, like, Hey, you know, you, you get really well paid and we're mentoring you. And so you deal with whatever aggressiveness there is like that's, it's a blessing for you to be here. And the truth is, is they were right. Um, whatever mentorship I got early on, uh, there was a, I should, I could have worked for free and it would have been worth it, you know? So they were correct. So I kind of, you know, I adopted that mentality, to be honest, and, and thought that that was the norm. Um, when I went into an operating role and you realize that the team is a lot more diverse, um, the needs are different, et cetera, um, it took me a while um, to understand. And I think there was a number of elements that went into that, which reshaped my brain to realize that culture is so important um, and and that I was looking at it the wrong way. One is I just think in general that there's been such a body of work put into mindfulness and mental health that didn't even exist, you know, 10 years ago. I mean, just a different world in terms of the amount of thought that's gone into that. So it's just like, it was like, we're probably still in the dark ages of a lot of the understanding of this, but by relatively speaking, we've come a long way and I'm definitely influenced by that. Um, you know, I think uh, clearly to me, um, you know, I, I don't want to talk politics, but I will say, you know, I'm probably, you know, from a New York perspective, because the pretty liberal place, you know, New York, I lean more center. Um, and so, you know, some of the things that came out of the, far left have been disturbing to me, but, you know, I try to keep an open mind and see the good in what's being said. And um, I think that there are some truths that were said about Wall Street um, that made me want to be in a different capacity and contribute differently to the business world. Um, I was very influenced by the George Floyd um, time because, um, 
it was really positive in, in bringing our company together. Um, you know, we, we definitely have a very diverse workforce and um, we did a lot, you know, it was, it was during COVID and there was a lot of town halls we did. And, um, and I felt totally, you know, to be totally straight about it. Part of it I felt great about in terms of like, um, I felt that uh, people were not, saying that we weren't giving opportunities to everybody people were saying in general that we need to listen better and people's you know wanted to be heard it wasn't about some of the other things but it the town halls brought that forward and you know the, the it was actually a very positive bonding experience to have those town halls and make people feel empowered that I was listening and I felt the feedback was overall quite fair. And I, and, and I had the freedom to also push back on a few instances where people might have gone too far. Um, and, and, you know, some other things like I just didn't, I never agreed with defund the police. And, you know, I, I didn't want to give money to Black Lives Matter because I didn't know what actually was in there. I certainly believe in Black, black Lives Mattering. But it just the um, so I, I had the freedom to stand up, but I also kept an open heart and open mind. And um, as you know, we, we come from you know you live close to where I grew up in Long Beach, and I I feel very connected to the diversity that Long Beach brought. And I felt during this period of time, it kind of reconnected me in a really good way and made me think about you know what they call like stakeholders and that the stakeholders in our company are not just the investors um it's it's the team members as well um and uh, and the customers of course but as long as and i had to figure out a way to bring that all together that still is unabashed in the desire to make money but is doing so in a way that is not on the backs of anybody else really thinking about the work experience, <laughs> excuse me, I have allergies. Um, um, and and keeping it, keeping that balance healthier. And and I really think we've accelerated through that. And we're really now seeing it. Um, it's the little things, but the consistency of those little things that made people happy. Um, for example, um, giving people battle pay during COVID or um, always going in myself into many stores possible and asking about how people are doing and what can, advice do they have and how are they actually feeling or, or I'm wearing some kind of swag myself from Juice Press and they compliment it, take off my back and just give it to them. And like, you got to wear this sweatshirt, you know? Um, and, and also the most important thing is like learning their job. They know it. So then I can make it as attractive to them as possible um you know so like so that i wasn't just like thinking of new ways to make money and then just putting more and more work on their backs being very cognizant about how to make that job the easiest possible um and then like even things like tipping you know i had a balance between the customers um and the needs of the workers and you know i, I felt awkward about people coming to the store every day and feeling like they have to tip. And at the same time, I understood how important that was to our team members. So I did little things like 
you know, instead of like necessarily putting percentages in there, just write like $1, $2, $3. So maybe it's less imposing, you know, that if it's dollar, you know, that, that somebody might say, yeah, I'll give somebody a dollar, you know, like versus like feeling like it's like a restaurant and you have to give 20% just to buy something. So it's yeah. these kinds of things. And now we're really seeing it in our recruiting and going back to athletics, you know, I, I definitely talked to Sam about a lot about like, what are you doing to be a good team member? And that's an intricate thought process because, you know, to some extent you're just part of the team. And to some extent, if you're a captain, you're, you're kind of helping be the CEO, but ultimately the manager is the CEO or the coach. And how do you navigate that? Well, that, that's interesting because I was going to bring that up, you know, how it relates to your managers across your stores. Yeah. Um, being the coach in essence right and, and you know you're the owner of the team but they're the, they're the coach and they have to espouse those values that you instill in them and i think listen all anybody wants to do is is be heard so you talk about listening like listening yeah. is an undervalued asset you know if if somebody has a complaint i would imagine um within your organization and they voice that complaint and yeah. they don't get a response that's yeah. frustrating and, you know, that Definitely. raises their stress level. And so I think I think it's right on point. Um, and like I said, uh, from my experience in various locations over at Juice Press, you really have have the pulse of your worker. And I think it just makes for a better consumer experience. And at the end of the yeah. day, it's such a competitive market. Um, yeah. You being at the top, uh, you still want to stay at the top. So that experience um, is, is invaluable. Um, another question, like when, when you were in the midst of your finance career over, like, say, Karsh Capital, I read mm -hmm. somewhere where you were talking about um, everyday report card. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and that's got to be stressful, that industry and yeah. having to perform. And what was your outlet back then in terms of, you know, you have a family at home, you have, mm -hmm. you know, the stress of, 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 of you know, the returns every year that, that you gave yeah. your, your customers. What did you, you went for a run? You hit the gym, or you know, or did you I, not do, I, did you honestly, not do anything? I, that, that, I, mean, that I did it, but but the truth is, is that I I mistakenly thought that um, I could just eat pressure every day. I used to kind of say that, like that's my advantage. I can eat pressure. It's it's other people it bothers doesn't bother me. Um, and and in fairness, I kept it up for you know, almost 20 years. Uh, and at the same time, I was wrong, you know, because um, I didn't have the desire to do it another 10 years. And it was still, I walked away from an amazing money machine in that way. Um, so obviously, it did bother me, I just wasn't acknowledging it. Um, I think it's a bigger thing, like the biggest realization I have um, and I've, I've actually talked to several people recently about this and, and kind of being a coach. And I talked to Sam about this, but, you know, in a strange, you remember, you remember, because you, I think you actually met him. Do you remember our Bulgarian um, partner, yeah, yeah, the, Kirill? Yeah, sure, probiotic. Probiotic. So our partner in the creation of probiotic um, in a crazy set of circumstances um, became the prime, is the prime minister of Bulgaria now. Wow. Yeah. So you can look him up. Kirill Petkoff, you met him in our office. Yeah. Um, I hired him while he was at Harvard Business School and 
he he and I did a number of deals. And then he became the head of probiotic and became the head of Ministry of Finance of and then got elected the government, which when you think about the timing of that, um, he became the prime minister uh, January 1st of this year wow. and as a member of NATO and the EU and was had his gas cut off by Russia um, with the same day as Poland had theirs cut off. So Kirill has been you know, going through a tremendous amount. Um, and what I learned was I went to visit him in DC um, recently. And what I learned is even somebody in that position running 7 million people, you know, that he's still like, like I say, even Tiger Woods needs a swing coach. You know, he, he's still, yeah. <laughs> even when you're in charge of 7 million people, you still need a swing coach. And And what I said to him, my observation is, and I'm still working on this, but I, I feel this is, I still like the way it sounds to me is people have, people are inherently defensive animals. Like we're, we're, we're defensive. And that is, a, that is a function of our, our desire to see ourselves in a perfect light and no matter what our actual performance is, and there's kind of two parts of that. But that problem is, is that defensiveness, it's a seek, it's a positive because it keeps us going without melting, but it prevents us from growing as people. And, you know, you sort of, the way I look at it is, is two parts of your brain. You've got this big, big thing, this gobbledygook of millions of experiences in your life, your genetics, your and your parents, and your childhood, and relationships, and successes and failures, and that thing is like so strong and fully formed, but it's not necessarily logical. In fact, all of us, logic built into it based on all of that stuff, and then we have another part of us, which is what I was saying, which is like fight or flight. You know, we kind of just tell ourselves. Like, oh, we'll be okay either way, or, you know, or like, I don't care, but you do care, right? So like what I said is like, I use pressure for a living, you know, like, you know, so what I see is that the, the value of a great team or a great coach or mentor is somebody who can look at you, because we all can see everybody else's problems than their, our own easier. <laughs> than than our own right so to get somebody to stand outside of that and look at it and say okay here's what like a, a rational experienced person would say is in that gobbledygook is what you're you're kind of missing and here's what most people would think and and here's kind of like your defense mechanism and, and so you have, you're you're impeded by your fight or flight, and you're impeded by all these experiences. So, what that could be is like, you know, you could say, for example, like, um, I don't I don't care anymore if I don't play lacrosse in college. Like, you know, after all your friends got recruited to fourteen, and you know right. you're still sitting there, I, I don't even want to play anymore. And you start okay. actually believing that, but that that's kind of healthy because it's protecting you from melting, but it's terribly inefficient and not good overall. Or maybe you kind of grew up around a family that quitting was okay. And so 
you just the bad the, the the messy part of you and somebody outside of you but but what i learned is like you need to actually have some you actually have to yourself be ready for that and and encourage people to want to give you that then you have to find the right teammate coach mentor parent to give you that and then you're going to grow a lot but most people when you start showing them where they're wrong in that messiness they attack you right and so what i'm saying about my friend the prime minister is he came to me and he was like god talk to me because i can't he's like i got so much in my head this has been a crazy whirlwind i've got it's nuts what's going in for, through my head in terms of that just you've known me for a long time tell me where am i where where am i not thinking about this rationally and and it really helped not because i was so good at it but but because he was ready for that and um going and back you're an, to, you were an outside yeah. voice too like you, you i was an outside a voice trusted, a trusted, a trusted outside, outside voice. voice right exactly and 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 that made all the difference that was sam going back to what we talk about is because i know sam is certainly not going to be a professional um and he's achieved his college like what I see is a couple of things for Sam and what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, one is he's a, he's an awesome generalist, Sam. He's never, and he's young. So I want to be careful. Today's actually his 18th birthday, but nice. the goal now is to figure out how to get him to be like ready to um, be, learn how to be a specialist. And, and that's what I love about track is from here, every 10, 0. 10 0. 0.1 second matters. So right now it's all technique. And I would say people see things in one dimensional, two, three, and every so often somebody sees it in four. Um, or I say like somebody plays tic-tac-toe checkers or chess. And I want him to start I believe you could only start seeing those things also known as like seeing around the corner by getting into that last, those last details. And so that's what I want out of him when he's ready for it. The great thing is that track because he hasn't have any formal education in it yet, he's going to, he's getting that perfect transition from using his instincts to learning to be a scientist in order to find those those whether that's reshaping part of his body or it's you know figuring out the right footwork or whatever it is and i love that because i told him over time it's great to be a great generalist but he will see that there'll be people who may not be as good of a generalist as him but they're obsessed with the details of certain things because they're so passionate about it but also understand that and those people will outdistance him in whatever he chooses unless he's committed to that so that's what we want to really get out of athletics for sam the second part is i love the fact that at duke if he's fortunate enough to walk on to that is the kids who are running sprints there and the track team is just a different group of kids that he's hung out with um, at school and in the private schools of new york and so the ability to you know because you're going to these schools and like like literally 
he'll walk in knowing, and this is true more and more of social, like social media and, you know, the way kids are these days compared to when we went to college, like I knew, you know, it was like, I, I knew one kid from my high school and then like, you knew maybe a kid from camp or something. And then it was like, maybe your parents might've known somebody. These kids walked in knowing, but they're the same kids right. you know, overall. So for like, the fact is really, I hoped he was either going to debate at Duke or something like that and just find a new group. But I'm really excited for him to be part, hopefully of a track team. Um, and, and, uh, that would be to me just an amazing, uh, rounding of his social experience at, at school. Yeah. I, I think the, the great thing you showed me some video of him running. I think that he's so raw. I mean, listen, anything we do in terms of an experience or competitive, we want to see measurable results. Right. So I think yeah. he's so raw that I think, you know, when you talk about specialists, he's going to get with somebody that's going to take a 10th off his time. And he's going to be like, whoa, really? And I think he's just going to dive in and say, how do I take another 10th off? Because, yeah. you know, it's great to be at his age to have the mental capacity yeah. to understand as opposed to being, you know, seven years old and, you know, somebody telling him do this. And he has no, you know, he's over yeah. here doing that, talking to kids. But now he's 17. And if if he wants to 18 today and if he wants to actually take that instruction yeah. You know, that's something where you talk about specialists, he will be very, very motivated, I think. Yeah, uh, once he starts yeah, that. definitely. And and if you look at Juice Press, you know, because when you're creating something from scratch uh, in some way, you know, there is a healthy balance between borrowing practices that have already worked and being a scientist and experimenting and just figuring out yourself what is a way of bending the curve of whatever capabilities you have, you know, meaning, you know, juice press got crushed from COVID in terms of like just the traffic in the stores, people willing to go to gyms and stuff like that. We had to figure out how to compensate for that using the internal capabilities we had, which turned out to be the ability to source product, make product, distribute product, hundreds of thousands of relationships of emails and phone numbers without customers take that and leverage it into an alternative revenue stream or, or multiple alternative revenue streams to offset the, the the calamity of covid you know that learning about that is probably not that different than you know somebody's learning to ski 100 miles an hour downhill and figuring out when they hit an edge like how do you think about how to pivot off like to to make that work and not just wipe out um and so you know that only comes from those intricate details and 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 uh reps and stuff like that so i'm super excited for super excited for him to continue his growth in that way um so yeah yeah and uh sports as a vehicle for life is just, you know, I mean, listen, if kids aren't interested, you can't push them and force them into it. There's other things they can do, but I just yeah, think totally. sports in general is a great tool um, to advance. And that makes it yeah. easy for me though, because, because I don't, because we never had that, um, the drive in that way, but right. I have a, we have a drive for him like to be a professional, you know, like a, in terms of professional business person or lawyer or something right. like that. You know, I always say to him, like, I'm only telling you this 
if it was like basketball, I would tell him like, you know, because I was like, he was his shooting form. I was surprised he couldn't replicate what I thought he could replicate. And I was like, you know, for a smart guy, like you're not like using the same process at the free throw line that every good athlete would be using. And it's like, I'm only telling you this. I don't care about your free throw. I, I don't think you're going anywhere with this hoops other than you should enjoy it. But like, if you can't like learn, like see, watch tape and see that, and then be committed to improving it and caring enough about your team to make that work because it will help them in, in terms of a higher free throw percentage and what the value of replication and it being science, not just like, in hoops like acting like what you see on a nike commercial just like the coolness factor right like then that is going to bode poorly for you professionally so you got to think about the overlap there and the and also like the continuous improvement and the dedication to that and dedication to caring about others so it makes it a lot easier to have those conversations i think at least in my case when i was always saying I don't really care about your actual game. It doesn't matter to me. And seeing in that broader context, it kind of almost made it like I was giving him advice on a third person basis, which diffused a lot of our potential uh, conflict with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great way to get that message across. I remember, I remember Johnny might've been 10 and or nine or maybe, maybe nine, 10. Mm -hmm. And he asked me, he said, dad, he goes, uh, there was a, there was a two on one, you know, he's playing hockey. There was a two on one and there was a couple. And on the third one, he passed it, right. The pass got broken up on the first two. I think he might've scored. And he's like, dad, I just felt like I had to pass the puck because the other two, I took the shot. And I said, and I think it was either Gretzky or Messier. I took it from them. I read one of their books and it said, always make the right hockey play. I said, yeah. Johnny, if you come down 10 times on a two on one and the right hockey play is yeah. taking the shot, take the shot 10 times. If the right hockey play is passed, pass 10 times. And I think, you know, that's the same in life. It's like, just do the right thing. Like just yeah. in a situation, like make yeah. the right play. And I think that's, that's the best message we can get. I, I, I 1000% agree. We actually talk about, I mean, we, we call it in business or whatever, like expected outcome, like the best investors, the best business people, everything is an expected outcome. Meaning if I said to you, you know, I have a million dollars and I'm going to flip a coin. If, if, if you get it right, I'm going to give you a million, a million dollars. If you get it wrong, um, let me get, let me get this the right way. 50, so it's 50, 50 probability. So if you get it, if you get it, if you get it right, you get a million bucks. If you lose, you have to give me a hundred thousand dollars. And, and so the question is, would you be willing to do that? And but bottom line is like, all that matters is the probability it's 50, 50, you know, and you would say, no, that's not good because if, because I'm, my probability of outcome is I'm going to lose um well you would actually sorry you would you would do that but it depends if you have a hundred thousand dollars or not but but point is is that all you're saying is in the end or like it's all probability like 
Like there's a three point shot that's open. What's the probability of you hitting that three pointer given your percentages and given where you're standing relative to the guarding versus if you pass it. And he and I had those same conversations numerous times. And, you know, frankly, we had a lot of hoops again, it's like a light touch thing for him because it was, and it was awkward because he always saw himself as a guard, but the truth is, and had this first half of the year, like he's six two and he's a guard, and it was like his three point shooting was at best average on his team, and so he would be frustrated the ball wasn't being, you know, flipped over to him. I'm like, the guy who you want to pass to you has a higher three point probability than you. So right. why would he throw? Other than to be a nice guy, why would he or to keep his guy honest? Why would he? He should be shooting it, like. So it's the opposite. Like I, I had to tell him a little bit of a right, right. Also, I was like, if I were him, and I was, and I was a coach. I would say he should be shooting it every time. And I don't mean that. I love you to death, but that's that's okay. It's good. You got to take learn. the emo- you got to take the emotion and, out of it. You know what I mean? And actually, what happened was in the back half of the season, you know, he did what he should have been doing, which is even though he's only six two, he jumps like you know he is you know he like throws down with two hands without without dribbling he plays like he's six five six six and they have no guys on the team who are six five six six and once he made that adjustment and stopped shooting three pointers and only played down low the whole team changed because because the same guy was shooting the three pointers with a higher probability and all of a sudden his shooting percentage more than doubled and the amount of rebounds in the team and then the team went from not winning to going deep into the playoffs. And even though, again, there was no consequence because it's nothing other than nice memories for him, honestly, is, you know, like not taking those threes and telling him that was a better, a much better outcome for him and a learning experience and for everybody. And that's what, that's exactly what you're saying. Um, and I always say, I say something similar, like, you know, like if, if the ball, if, if you're down, six points and you don't shoot the ball like then you may as well not be in the game like there's a lot of guys who don't want to shoot the ball even when it's down six because they'd rather they'd rather look smart than win or they'd rather look not embarrass themselves than win because well i didn't shoot it you know no one can blame me for missing it and it's a very suboptimal way of thinking and that's true of investing of management but i think going back to culture though is if you don't where and i think this is where maybe your son is mixing up culture and those probabilities is if you show graciousness off the ice or explain yourself you may get a very different reaction to that guy meaning if you said afterward after let's say you did it three times ways and unfortunately most people are one way or the other right you can either be the person who shoots three times a lot of times that guy is like just built like john starks like two for 19 and just still shooting and whatever and then there's the other guy who just like too nice you know like they say about the you know the guy who was unbelievable in 10th 12th grade in basketball and you ask college coaches like oh is this guy going to kentucky and they're like no, the, the great thing about him is that he still takes the bus to school. The problem with him is he still takes the bus to school. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. He doesn't know enough to be driving a Range Rover in 12th grade. 
you know, like he's just not ballsy enough to be in the NBA. So, you know, the same thing here, it's like you have to learn to create the right words of graciousness at the right time to make somebody feel like, listen to just same thing, right? Like, hey, listen, you know, here's why I did what I did. I want you to know if I thought there was a high probability, you know, I would have passed it and, and I think you're great. You know, like that goes so far. It just goes so far. And it, there's a difference between listening and nice guys finishing last. And I think we it's a hard balance, but I think that's an example. Like if you can teach your kid the value and the distinction between those things, it's invaluable. And you're going to go so far in life if you can balance those two things. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely believe that as well. And like you said, it's a process, right? Because you just, you know, you want to be liked, like especially at a young age going through sports, yeah. everybody wants to be liked. Um, yeah. So you want to do the right thing by others. Um, yeah. But you also have to look at, you know, that talent. Like, so Sam, when he made that adjustment and went down low, right? It, you know, yeah. you say no consequence, um, but obviously um, the learning experience of doing that and helping the team, that's going to help them in later in life on, on how to adjust, right? Yeah. And how to make adjustments to not only have themselves succeed, but have the team succeed. So, um, totally. yeah, I think it's a great conversation. I think one thing I want to say is, you know, I think uh, kudos to you for in your business, you were talking about, you know, for those 18 years, how, you know, you were like, hey, you know, I, I, I didn't really take care of myself in terms of, you know, taking time and making sure that, you know, that the stress level, you thought you could eat it. Right. And there you kind of phased out of that business. And whether it's ironically or whether it was meant to be, you got in a business um, that is uh, obviously health orientated in terms of physical health. Um, yeah. And I think that aligns very much with mental health. I think, you know, just from my background and living, you know, in the family with my wife that I do is very uh, not competitive athlete anymore, but she was, I think fitness, eating right. I think it's all tied into mental health. So, you know, now, and that you weren't a younger guy. Like, I mean, I think guys in your industry, they do it for so long. They do it for 15, 18 years. And even if they have a thought that, you know what, I got to change my lifestyle here. You know, financially, I may be set. Um, I have no worries there, but really my health is not great. Um, my relationships, because I commit so much time to my business may not be great. I really have to pivot. And I don't think enough of guys in their mid forties pivot to make themselves do things that are just as successful or maybe a little less successful, but allow them to enjoy their life enjoy their mental health and get fit because I think it's all tied together. So I'll give you the last word on that and then let you go. Thank you. Um, Oh, I, I believe that um, continuous learning is a um, tremendous um, form of optimism. And so I, I believe that it, it keeps me optimistic and young, you know, despite my gray hair that, I feel like I'm I'm still growing intellectually, emotionally, um, as manager so much still. And I never want to lose that feeling, number one. Number two, technology is changing society so fast. It's only going to compound on itself. And so if you don't um, continue to grow and learn, the probability of you being a outdated and a dinosaur which is not a fun place to be 
is is high, very high, almost insured. And then the last part of that is even though COVID and a lot of mixed outcomes of, of people's life expectancies, we should all prepare for the possibility that we are going to live into our 90s and hopefully even 100. And when you look at it that way, you can't be willing in your 40s to be done um, because that's just a long time to sit in Boca, you know, <laughs> you can't do that. So, so you gotta keep reinventing yourself. And the good news is I think there's lots of different ways to reinvent yourself right now, relative to history. Uh, I absolutely agree. And uh, here's to the middle age uh, transformation. Um, I appreciate you coming on, Michael. I think it was Thanks, a great pal. conversation. Yeah, a, a lot of people, a lot of people benefited from this, and uh, nice you know, I'll, you. I'll definitely see you soon. Uh, in the city. Maybe we'll grab some dinner. Thanks for coming I'll on. I love that. All right, take All care. Right, talk Bye. to you later. Much appreciated.